Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. With your keepers of mysteries, Jen Brinkman, Mark Bruner, Bob Brinkman. Enter the Sanctum Socorro and be inspired. Welcome to the Sanctum Socorum Podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N as it pertains to the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game, and we're here to help you serve these literary offerings at your DCC RPG table. I'm Bob, and with me tonight are Mark. Hello, everyone. And Jen. Hey, guys. And this evening's choice is Three Hearts and Three Lions by Paul Anderson. So, Mark... Tell us about it. Holger Carlson is an American-trained Danish engineer who joins the Danish resistance to the Nazis. At the shore near Elsinore, he is among the group of resistance fighters trying to cover the escape to Sweden of an important scientist, evidently the nuclear physicist Niels Bohr. With a German force closing in, Carlson is shot and suddenly finds himself carried to a parallel universe, a world where northern European legend concerning Charlemagne, the matter of France, is real. This world is divided between the forces of chaos inhabiting Middle World, which includes fairy, and the forces of law based in the human world, which is in turn divided between the Holy Roman Empire and the Saracens. He finds the equipment and horse of a medieval knight waiting for him. The shield is emblazoned with three hearts and three lions. He finds the clothes and armor fit him perfectly, and he knows how to use the weapons and ride the horse, as well as speak fluently the local language, a very archaic form of French. Seeking to return to his own world, Holger is joined by Alnora, a swan maiden, and Hugi, a dwarf. Interesting. So tell me, Mark, what did you think of this book? I found this a little bit less engaging than a couple of the books we've covered recently, notably Hero's Journey and the Dying Earth series. Mm -hmm. What I did find very interesting is it's very rooted in the same sort of time frame. I mean, these authors are all kind of working together in a very similar sort of post-World War II pre-moon landing sort of era and there's a lot i think i find similar about the writing styles in terms of the use of language but also just the basis of physics and engineering and math that each of those works carry forward and so i, I think while it was less successful in trying to bring forward aspects of you know intriguing narrative or or plot lines i did clearly see the influence on the on the dungeon dragon systems and other game systems I guess you know, overall it was sort of mixed about it, but you know I did find things I liked about it quite a bit. What about you, Jen? I was actually coming to the table with, I found this very similar to Sterling Lanier with the Hyro's Journey, but I would have to say it's a little less approachable because, Mark, you're totally right in that they're all coming from the same era and the same school of thought, really. But this one, he goes into the science of it a little more deeply and 
while I can appreciate a dwarf having kind of a Scottish brogue, <laughs> having to read it is much different than, say, listening to it in audio fashion, which I did for half the book. And I'm like, no, 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 I, I just need to read this thing. You know, to be fair, I think even David would have been stymied by this one because it starts out having this great fantasy feel to it. And overall, it, it might be kind of interesting and fun with the Arthurian legend thrown in, but when he sits there and goes on for paragraphs about the science, I will say that there were two parts that I specifically did not like, and that was the intro and the note at the end, which were meant to be like quasi-author's notes, but they were all done in character, telling us about oh, well, this is what really happened to him in modern times, in the war, and everything else. I'm like, I'm just not getting this, man. I don't know that it's approachable for, say, a first-time person coming into Appendix N. Don't know that I would recommend this particular book. I think you've got to recommend it for its historical aspects in terms of, you know, what it means to the original genesis of the game. But you are very right about those kind of jarring almost interruptions of science and engineering as, as and he physics. tries yes and, and it's all coming from the main character's point of view so oh well maybe if this happened then this is the reaction to it and this no no stop you, you <laughs> can't even figure out why you remember having the skills of a knight why are you trying to f deal with physics in the middle of the fairy woods there's a huge disconnect there for me Okay, well, I'm glad to see that I'm not going to be the only standout when I say I just really didn't like this book. <laughs> and I'm sure I'm going to get, I'm, we're going to get mail. I'm sure we're going to get mail. That This well, is what it takes to get mail. It uh, wasn't bad, <laughs> it just wasn't to my taste. Much respect to Paul Anderson. He was a founding member of the SCA, he was a founding member of the Swordsman and Sorcerers Guild of America. Oh, wow. Yeah, he was a Science Fiction Writers of America Grandmaster. Of course. Uh, he was inducted into the Science Fiction and Fantasy Hall of Fame. Very prolific, too. So, yeah, very yeah. prolific. He's certainly not a hack. He's a solid author. And the novel is based on a novelette that he wrote in 1953. So it was originally much more short and compact, and maybe that would have helped. But when I read it, the whole thing it felt sort of like a pastiche of a cliché heaped upon more cliché. <laughs> now, I have to wonder if that's because we've been so into D&D &D and DCC and the whole fantasy role-playing game stuff ahead of time. Well, certainly there's stuff in there that, to me, felt derivative, even though it was original, like the troll. The troll, which is now the D&D &D troll, which is the DCC RPG-style troll, this is where it comes from. But he draws on so many other, and I would say better works, The Worm Ouroboros by Eric Edison. He name-drops Mirkwood and Wargs from Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. He's pulling from Fairy Queen by Spencer, Tam O'Shanter by Robert Burns, Mark Twain. I think there's there's very little Paul Anderson in this book. It's it's all somebody else. I mean, the character even directly quotes, well, I'm doing this just like in a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. Oh, so yeah. right off the bat, that bugged me a lot. Some of the stuff in there is very fresh, and Mark's right. Some of the stuff in there is, is very, very influential, and this is where the law-cast alignment system comes from. This partly inspired Moorcock's Eternal Champion. Uh, so there was, there was a lot of stuff there, but the whole man from modern-ish times wakes up in a fantasy world is a real common trope to begin with, and 
I didn't find it really well done here. I found that his injecting science, while that specifically doesn't bother me, it was done a lot better in the 70s by Gordon Dixon when he did the Dragon Knight series than, oh, well, you know, because of conservation of matter, this is all going to be radioactive and we're going to die. Go! Uh, yeah. Parts of it just felt very, very sloppy and very rushed. And the dialect. Oh my god, the use of dialect. Which was pretty much limited to only the people that traveled with him. Everyone they yes. encountered spoke perfect English. Except for the I, two companions. And... I read quickly. Uh, I'll, I'll be the first to admit, I read this novel in, in two hours. Oh, An hour of that was having to stop every time the dwarf opened his mouth and go, well, I have to read this aloud because on the printed page this makes no sense. And it was just cumbersome, it was overdone, it was unnecessary. There's moments in the book I like, but overall, this is not a book I enjoyed at all. Uh, this, uh, I walked away from this like David walked away from the life of Eben, going, what did I just read and why? <laughs> to be fair, I was right with him in that trail, man. <laughs> if there had been a different trope, or a, oh, hey, we just need to go retrieve this sword in the stone that is... Oh, the plot know, was wonderful! ...akin to this... Uh, the adventure, down to the little details of, okay, and it took this long to actually put the armor on, because it's the first time he's doing so. I think that is nice and educational. You can't just gear up in a minute. It takes a couple of minutes to put all the layers of armor on. I actually didn't mind the journey itself, the adventure and some of the things they came across. I thought the storyline was decent. I th think it was the actual printed words on paper that really threw me off the most. Or the audio that was how you were having to struggle through. <laughs> well, like, like I said, I only listened to it for maybe the first third of the book, and I will admit I was confused as all hell about ten minutes in, and they're still talking about the Danish being involved in World War II, finally, and... Wait, wait, what? I thought this was a fantasy book. And I had to actually open the, the physical book and say, Oh, God, we're still in the intro? Are you serious? <laughs> it's an intro to a story just like John Carter goes from... It, it's a very common trope that's in the past was used, I think, much better. Um, the but story the whole itself, thing you're being right. Holger Carlson being the hero of the story, Oh, well, he told me this story happened to him. Again, <clears throat> that's very common, well, especially in the 20s and 30s, not as common in the 50s and 60s, but it was a very common trope in old sci-fi fantasy. But the other thing that really bugged me, while the journey is really great, the end is very abrupt and it is essentially and now he becomes the heroic god and rides out okay so this entire thing was we want to get him to the point where he can kick major ass and now that he can we're done there's a sunset and there's and, and there's look, no follow-up novel he's riding this off into it, it. <laughs> like seriously that that that's the end now, so. much like some of the others that we've read, it also had that strong tie to christianity and you know again the saracens and everything i really liked the fact that the dwarf would make the pagan circle around their campsite while Holger put the cross up there. So you had the two powers kind of working together, but neither giving the other one that sly look of, yeah, yours isn't going to work, but mine is. Well, because in that world, they both worked. And that's that's a real yes. important note. I really liked the, them working in concert without saying my religion's better than yours. 
Well, and I think it's a nice reminder, really, of every, anything to take from this book and beat players over the head with. Um, that would be <laughs> it. Because I'm so tired of sitting down at a table and you've got two different clerics and either one is like, well, you know, my God's the only true God. No, 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 no. You live in a polytheistic society. There are multiple faiths and you know that they're real because gods answer prayers. And so in this storyline, yes, the old magics, as I think Ernie said, Gary would have said, the hippies uh, certainly have their power. <laughs> and Christianity and essentially Catholicism has its power and they coexist. They're both real. So, of course, neither one would be sneering at the other because they're both real powers. There was this interesting point that I thought he made, too, which is related to that. It's not... Not necessarily the god or the rituals you follow, but it's a sense that the power you have over over fairy is in some ultimate sense that you can't be conquered unless you want to be, which I found kind of a neat idea. It's repeated a few times where the giant can't come in into their circle until there's you know these unpure thoughts, right? And because he hadn't had time to ask forgiveness. Right. Essentially, yeah. he had sinned and had not yet been shriven of his sins which is yeah. a very Catholic thing. <laughs> it's that there's these external forces that essentially it's within you to control that, you know, access or their, their limits. And it's a kind of a neat idea that it'd be kind of interesting to see how that kind of plays out in a, in a game sense. But you're right. It's agnostic to these rituals. It's how those rituals are characterizing that internalization of those pure thoughts or those those things that can keep the the chaos at bay now of course also since he is the prototype for the dungeons and dragons paladin well yes the crone <laughs> right, even calls one, him yeah. as much <laughs> well yes he is the prototype for the dungeons and dragons paladin i mean there's never been a question that's where the paladin comes from and this shows how a paladin is supposed to be so there's there's definitely lessons to be taken from this book um, not necessarily a whole lot of enjoyment but there are definitely <laughs> lessons to be taken, including some science lessons but there's lessons to be taken from this book so if you want to look at it from that aspect of getting a better understanding of just law versus chaos getting a better understanding of what it is to be a paladin things like that the book is worth reading i think that it did feel very sort of puzzle piece put together like he's trying and I don't know if this was early in his writing period, you know, if this was one of his, his kind of first efforts, but he's trying different styles, you know, with the dialects. He's creating little vignettes rather than complete narratives. So you get these interesting pieces, like encounters with the werewolf or the encounters with the Nixie, very nice short scenes that I think work well when they're contained, but they're, they do sort of feel like they're sort of hodgepodge, they're put together. But, you know, what I find curious about that is that when you, you talk about you know, its influences and its also precursors, this novel sort of reveals a little bit more because it's much more evident in the fact that all novels are borrowing from each other, right? You know, the idea that Elric is inheriting from this novel, but this novel is inheriting from Spencer and these things. This kind of just shined a little bit more of a light on it because it was much more obvious in this novel. But <laughs> Yes, yes, it, it was. It's so much more obvious. <laughs> but, but it, you know, it kind of makes you reconsider this other works to say, oh, well, in the context of what they were doing, they're also inheriting or borrowing from these novels, which makes it a little bit more interesting to kind of look at those novels in that light as well. So I found that kind of, worth reading it also from the aspect of what it, it led me to think about in those terms. You raise an interesting point about how far along this was in his career, and the answer is it sort of depends. He started having stories published in like 46 or 47, 
this is based on a novelette published in 53, but then as a novel, this was published in like 61 or 62. So it's based on something from early in his career. And I mean, he lived and wrote for quite a while, so it's certainly not the later portion of his career. But this, I think he was just trying to polish something that was great conceptually, but no. Yeah, (laughs) just to illustrate one of the little parts of plot that I really found bothersome was the Swan May. Eleonora has heard of Denmark when he tells her of where he's from, but uh, Mother Gord, the crone or witch that he meets early on, can't or won't answer his questions straight out when he said, what time is this? What year is this? What place is this? And as it turns out, oh, well, that's because Morgan Le Fay held this witchery over everyone so that you wouldn't figure out who you really were. Uh, no. I, I'm, I, which is a Danish hero, which is really, Arthur, which really is... Really kind of hard to swallow, though, because he wasn't Arthur, was he? Maybe? Yes, Morgan Le Fay had taken him back to Avalon. He was all of those things. That's where the eternal uh... champion linkage comes from. Oh, he was essentially boy, every maybe. great knight in history, but first he was yeah. i think holger the dane yeah i did learn one very cool thing from this book though Ooh, do tell thermodynamics is considered magic yes <laughs> uh you can hurt a dragon by throwing water down their throat and in through their snout uh, yes and by causing i think he called it a boiler explosion that's right yeah yeah i want to try that <laughs> That's a mighty deed right there, yeah. Uh, yeah, there we go. You know, it, it's a fantasy novel, so of course there's suspension of disbelief because there's a fire-breathing dragon. But I was like, okay, so let me get this straight. He's throwing a helmet full of water into the mouth. <laughs> really? No. He threw a half yeah. gallon is what he said. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's, that's no. That, there's, there's a little bit of steam. That's, no. Uh, yeah, so... Well, you know, I know there are people out there with backgrounds in science, and I would really love to hear what they think of this if they read the book in its entirety. Maybe that will be positive mail, because again, I'm pretty sure that there's going to be angry mail, because just no. So so moving on from just no, maybe we should look at things to stat instead, because, you know, there's, there's some positivity. What, what, what can we salvage from this? You know, right off the bat, we certainly don't need to stat the troll. It exists yeah. in, in both yeah, D&D, yeah. and it really is. It's the DCC troll. Even the descriptions, very, very similar. Oh, man. Carrot I, nose. Some of those descriptions of how the flesh rejoined with itself, that was actually probably the most colorful part of the book. If you think about it, DCC has that section for monsters where you can add death throws, and yeah. like the disembodied oh, yeah. hand scuttling around like a spider... Yeah, yeah, that was great. These are things that certainly could be used and fit with DCC very well. Creatures like the Nixie or the Swan May could certainly be statted up for DCC. But I really dug the hollow elven knight. Ooh. Yeah. That suit of armor that was just all whoop-ass that... Uh, it was empty. It was well enough written that it had kind of a creepy feel to it. And I can just picture, you know, this eldritch armor covered in in runes done in like a Damascus style steel storming down out of the fog, you know, onto the battlefield to attack a party. And I think it could be done really nicely. The dagger of burning. I mean, come on. That was really cool. (laughs) That's a case where the science or the physics and the, you know, so the magic intersected really well. 
you know, this idea that, yes, there is an explanation for it in this world. It's considered magic, but I can understand why it's doing this. And I thought that was a really neat element of the story, and it worked well for the concept. I thought the lighting it portion was a bit long. Yeah. In a world with magic, maybe couldn't you just light it rather than having someone running a grindstone over and over faster and faster? But... I suppose these are nits. I mean, certainly we've statted Merlin before, but I've never done Morgan Le Fay. Um, Some of the elf court would be great NPCs or straight out villains to stat up and throw against a party. So those are kind of the standouts for me. What about you, Jen? Was it Elf Hill? Oh, yeah. I actually kind of dug Balamorg because he was a smart giant and it was all about the riddles with him as opposed to, well, I could kill you, but you could also give me something clever that I could take back home. Yeah, I kind of like that. I'm the county smart riddle champion. <laughs> give me the riddles that I can use and I will let you live. Yeah, that was kind of fun. I think of the trilogy of main characters, I would go with Hughie. Especially with his little mantra of, I have been a good dwarf. I have been a good dwarf. Please, not the face, not the face. Don't kill me. <laughs> and uh, they only mentioned it maybe once, but there was the hell horse in the graveyard and all they said was that if you look it in the eye, you will immediately join the dead that it is patrolling. Yeah, and, that was pretty cool. Okay, that, mm, that set yeah. a really nice morbid scene there. I kind of dug that one. Cool. My list is short for this one, sorry. Well then, Mark, lay it on us, man. What did we miss? <laughs> <laughs> I really was intrigued by the, the burning knife and the empty night. You know, especially that, that empty night aspect of it is encountered early in his in his travels into the, the fairyland. And you didn't know, did were all the fairies like that? You know, was that, that gonna be, you know, sort of how they existed, but they don't turn out to be that way. I thought that was really an interesting, compelling part of the story like you did. Good point. I also thought that the fog that they encountered as they're trying to escape, it almost was like a spell where they are beset uh, at night by these beasts, these night gangers, I think is what they call them. And it's, you filled the the air with slitherings and hissings and howls and laughs. I I thought that that would make a neat spell write up. As well as some of the illusions that they used to disguise Holger when he was trying to not be found out by the Saracen. So he oh, had a, yeah. an illusion that covered his face, and he even had his horse you know, illusioned to mimic Much a, a to the dismay person. of the wizard, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Right. He, he had to pay extra for that, for the things they didn't pay for. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Also the fact that he wasn't part of the illusion, so he had to look in a mirror and only to see these changes, you know, which I, I thought was kind of a, a cool little twist on the spell. Yeah, the, the fate magic in general is pretty interesting because it, details were well worked in, like the self-buckling clothes that he was given in the fairy court which I found was kind of a neat detail that these clothes are magic to be both well-tailored, but they also dress themselves and then they go away, right? They disappear when he leaves that area or when it's, you know, when kind of an anti-curse, you know, it, it leaves him a little bit exposed, which I, I, I thought was kind of fun. Well, and thinking about that for a second, you know, if you look in DCC and how rare any true magic item of power is and how difficult it is to enchant things, to have a villain, for example, that has clothes that does what a what a beautiful blatant display of power yeah in dcc magic is something you do not take uh, those sort of of like little mundane things with it is a so it's taking the raw stuff of the universe and trying to shape it which is inherently dangerous but just what hubris to do that and do it in such a sort of petty way that would really be impactful, you know, to, like you said, to like a villain or some potent magic that the players encounter. I think that'd be kind of neat to see. Yeah, no, that, that certainly would. I kind of had the idea of doing a, 
you know, Hugi is a dwarf, but he's a wood dwarf, which I thought was kind of an interesting difference from DCC. I thought that'd be kind of fun to try to stat out as a character class. You know, what what would be oh. the differences for a wood dwarf, you know, coming from the, where he's encountering nature and he's familiar with the swan maze and things like that. So I thought that would be possibly one character class that might be interesting. Since I think there, there has been a paladin done in possibly one of the, the earlier zines, is that, although I may, I may be um. misremembering. Crawl 6, that's where the paladin's from. They had the paladin, the bard, and the gnome. And, I mean, the fact of the matter is that in DCC, you can make a lawful warrior that is a paladin. Yeah, you can. But, it, it, but he does show up elsewhere. They did mention uh, mountain dwarves as well. Oh, that's right. Yeah, there, was, there were different types. Yes. They met, is it Uric, the mountain dwarf? It's where he made the really bad bargain for the pipeweed. <laughs> you mentioned Elf Hill, which where I did have an, another thought there. You know, Elf Hill is portrayed as a way of getting Holger you know, out of the way, right? They can't kill him for whatever reason because he, he represents, you know, more than just this sort of mortal body, perhaps. But Elf Hill is this place where time passes in 100-year increments for every year that you spend there or every night of merrymaking, right. you, you know, you spend time there. I, you know, I thought that was kind of interesting. It also made me think of Tenelorn from Moorcock's universe, which is this place of peace and, and repose because clearly Elf Hill, while a dangerous place, is also one where Holger or Olger, you know, the Dane, spent much of his pleasant time recovering from age, recovering from, you know, the injuries of battle. And this this concept of, yes, it, it you know, it's it's a dangerous place, but it could also be this peaceful sort of resting place for the, the weary souls that, you know, are, are fighting this eternal battle, you know, over and over again. So I, I thought that was kind of an intriguing thing. You might be able to work out in type of a quest type scenario you know how do the adventurers get to there and recover something or bring back from that place i hadn't even made that connection i was so strongly focused on the celtic origin of elf hill because that's so pure irish scottish gale this is what the fairies do you go under the hill i have oh, made yeah. the, uh, the morcock connection that's nice and then a couple of npcs one mother gerd i thought she was the minor character she obviously puts holger on sort of a, a direct path to encountering chaos creatures and fairy creatures but she brews a great ale and she know, does and, so with <laughs> magic she does it with magic that was kind of a fun you know thing that holgi keeps referring back to is that yeah i, I you know these chaos beings you know, they're not all bad. They, they have some... <laughs> she traffics <laughs> with demons, but she makes a good ale. Yeah. And then the other one was Martinus Trimegistus, the Magister Magistri, that they encounter, the one that gives them the illusion spell. Oh, yeah. It reminded me a lot of Dr. Chapman from Prince Charming Reanimator. And he's got this kind of cluttered, you know, study, and he's kind of this yeah. knowledgeable person of arcane knowledge and, and, and power. Uh, I kind of thought Dr. Chapman is portrayed there as kind of post-life. He's a patron. But an earlier version of him would be make a kind of an intriguing NPC. So That whole scene reminded me of the chapter page for magic in the book, where you've got yeah. the lady with all the stuff at the workshop behind her, all those little details. It's really funny, and it's a very jarringly different visual, but every time I read about Mother Gerd, the hand witch from uh, Gravity Falls sprang to mind. Just the cartoonish, <laughs> green, lumpy, short crone. <laughs> exactly how I imagined her every time. Kind You're of creepy, fired. mostly harmless. <laughs> That's just how I saw her. Okay, well, if I'm fired, then why don't we move on to props from the audience again? <laughs> what do you got? Bring it. Give, give me. Figures on the tapestry in Duke Alfrio's palace were slowly changing. So 
bring in a tapestry or bring in some some figures that are similar or portraits I should say but slightly different and just every now and then switch them out and maybe it portrays a different mood within the game or a different theme maybe something as innocuous as oh hey everybody gets an extra point of luck to spend or something along those lines or oh this is a scene of a death but now they're moving so Hmm. everyone needs to be on their guard a little bit of course there's the brew mistress so you know you've got all these really cool road crew games out there especially drinking and dragons props built in right there go (laughs) (laughs) okay Audio, I'm I'm coming up a little bit blank on this one because he just seemed to have his own little heroic soundtrack about him. The way they kept trading the folk songs, yeah, he and Hughie. Okay, that that's a pretty good traveling montage scene, which I think Fair fits enough, yeah. into what Mark was going to add. Well, Mark, what do you have for us? They do talk a lot about those folk songs, but they're awfully body, you know, in terms of their nature. Actually, I wasn't familiar with any of the ones they referenced, so I went and read the lyrics, and they're way more, you know, sort of <laughs> obvious body than than what I was expecting. I thought they were going to be sort of the more Shakespearean, yeah, no. oily, re- you know, referencing, you know. Oh, uh, even in the Shakespearean language. era, the common songs were. Oh yeah. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, you could do a lot with just playing some of that type of folk music or perhaps having an NPCs that offer that as a kind of intro to who they are, you know, what it, it kind of means or characterizes them in a sense. But there's this band that does music pretty well in, in a more satisfactory way, which is called Marooned. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. Ah, <laughs> uh, the cuckoo's nest. <laughs> oh, gosh, yes, the cuckoo's nest. Uh, yeah. I, that, that made me think of, of Marooned and you guys uh, especially, and I thought that'd be kind of a fun in joke for DCC players as well. Ask Bob about <laughs> wallabies sometime off air. Okay. Off oh. air. <laughs> what about you, Bob? When I got to thinking about music, besides the tunes they use, and and yes, the the common British songs tend to be very very body of the period, which is kind of funny because a lot of the Danish folk music really wasn't, and so that kind of struck me as odd. But you can find Danish folk music by groups such as uh, Virale or Gni, which is G-N-Y, and yes, I had to look up how to pronounce <laughs> G-N-Y. It's Gni. Okay. Or Hulrilach. And Very nice. Yeah. You can get some really good Danish folk music that way. Um, there's more modern groups like Black Wreath or As We Fight, and that's more Danish metal, which okay. you go from, well, in, in a story where you're going from, yes, I'm a questing knight, to let me use advanced physics to try and take out a dragon. <laughs> I think that dichotomy is fair to use. There's also, you could also kind of use some of the epic style music like To Valhalla by Antti Martikainen. So musically, you've got it. You have quite a smorgasbord, uh, <laughs> but you have you have quite, you've got quite a selection there. Sigh. Prop wise, was a little was a little more difficult for me. Although this would certainly be a decent game to sit down with, honestly, with a nice beer. There's Dwarven Ale from the Dwarven Brewing Company, which is a traditional British nut brown ale, and the logo of the brewery is a dwarf following an ale cart after having pulled the bung and he's filling his mug. 
<laughs> and it is quite a fine ale. So maybe something like that, if that is your thing while you're gaming, to have a have a drink or two. But magic swords aren't really great to bring to the table because someone generally loses a finger. Mm, yeah. We can't even fall back on rotting meat like David would have used. <laughs> Uh, I think mag- for this magnesium you can strike up and, and flare <laughs> you know, a little bit of magnesium or just get a big freshwater eel and throw it on the table and say it's a Nixie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now you could, if you wanted to play up the mystery aspect, find a friend that's got like a Malamute or a Husky and get some dark coarse fur when it's about shedding time. And oh. you can use a little bit of that. Well, you find, you find this clasped in the corpse's hand. You could certainly do something like that. But overall, I thought this was kind of a, prop light story for me not not necessarily a fan of the book but the story itself has merit and certainly playable which let's let's talk about the dcc inspirations and reskins uh what did this make you think of mark when you thought of adventures there's a lot of things that you could say are related in intrigue at the court of chaos by michael curtis which is a a story that sort of pits the party into making choices for law for chaos for neutrality for themselves you know in terms of who they throw their allegiance to and that was a, a really fun adventure and it builds on the like you said the, this foundation starts with you know some of these earlier novels and, and stories going through three hearts and three lions through michael moorcock up until the modern dcc adventures which you know I, I, you could see all those sort of resources being pulled together in michael's work and i, I like that adventure quite a lot Creeping Beauties of the Woods by Daniel Bishop, which is part of his fairy tale series. Mm-hmm. He's got a whole fae sort of fairy area in that module or that adventure where you can go to the goblin market and you encounter these fairy creatures. And there's that whole woods and sort of this twilight sort of fairy area that you have to go in and, and adventure into, which uh, I thought was a, a pretty good introduction to bringing fairies into uh, into DCC. Oh, um, yeah. Not, not in Kansas anymore <laughs> by Dieter Zinnemann, which is a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court type story. Now, is that the first well one you played? I played Portal Under the Stars, my very first okay. you know, time I played with with some friends. But that was the second one I played when I went to Gen Con. I, I played um, Frozen in Time right the day before that, I think, or the morning before that. So it, it was among the first three that I played and it awesome. was a pre-te- or, you know a, a Gen Con playtest of called something else right. way back in 2013 but now published in the Goodman Games Gen Con catalog last year and yeah you know, the, the, the program guide program guide yes yeah. it gives you an example of how to tell that story I think you know if we're struggling with this is sort of feels very tried and overdone when it's done with with three hearts and three lions it feels very fresh you know in in terms of how playful it is in it in does and that it's a great adventure I yeah really it, it really is it's it. it's very light it's just the right length so it's it's very good and i and i highly recommend it there's one other one that i that made me this this made me think of which is there's a gong farmer's almanac by steve bean from last year and an entry that he did called i fought the law and the law won and it's his article about how to make law more interesting more compelling to play where his theory is that People enjoy playing Chaos because it does have that seductive quality. And neutral is obviously, as, as Ernie would say, it's, well, yeah, play neutral. That's what everybody, that's what <laughs> dad did. And that's what, that's what we do. But right. he's, he, he's trying to make law stand on its own and not just be that boring sort of, well, law is law. So we have to fight for it, right? You know, what makes it interesting? And so that's a good article to read just that I, I think Steve Bean, he did well in that, in, in that introduction back then. 
And that's an Very article? Nice. It's an entry, I guess, in one of the Goncourt Almanacs. It's about okay. You know, 12 or 14 pages, if I remember correctly. Okay. Nice, nice bit of reading there, yeah. What about you, Jen? I don't know how this quite worked out, but uh, there's a handful of Harley Stroh's works that really just popped into However mind. However could that have happened? I know, right? <laughs> this is my surprised face. He is not prolific or anything. Um, <laughs> you know, Doom of the Savage Kings. Well, especially when the liege lord and his family are suspected of being werewolves. And the whole aspect of that one with, well, there's this lycanthrope or this, this creature that we just need to stop. And, oh no, it might be threatening the biggest family in town. Oh no. A little more seriously, Bride of the Black Manse. Because you're transported into this other time, essentially. And all of a sudden you have a bit of retained knowledge from these other characters in this other family line. And, hmm, okay, you could play with that one. The two would interspersed quite nicely and you know toward the end of this book Olger is pursued by the wild hunt so beyond the black gate is kind of a given there were a couple of points with some of the casting and I did appreciate the word eldritch being used in things that weren't necessarily Lovecraftian situations (laughs) uh But there was a scene with Mother Gord using the brazier that was on the tripod, and it just instantly reminded me of a playtest of John Hooks that I was in uh, this past GaryCon for an upcoming module called The Thing That Should Not Be. Oh, yeah, right, right out of that one. I think my overall, you know, besides our featured here, I'd have to go with The Trolls of Mistwood. The one that uh, David Fisher wrote, Shinobi 27 released. It's pretty self-explanatory with the title, but the portrayal of the trolls themselves was really well done and would have fit in this nicely, in addition to the chaotic power of witches. How about you, Bob? Right off the bat, adventures like Beyond the Silver Scream, Not in Kansas Anymore, Peril on the Purple Planet. These are already adventures where people are traveling from one world to another, and it would be very easy to reskin those using characters coming from the 1940s and just change the feel into something that is more like Three Hearts, Three Lions in that aspect. But you could do that with virtually anything. You could take a a session of Black Powder, Black Magic, or Dark Trails, and so you've got this Wild West and drop modern men into it. So the storyline, just like the three aforementioned adventures, has kind of that fish-out-of-water feel to it. You could also reverse it. Take your standard DCC fantasy characters and drop them into a like 1960s, 1970s esoteric America from Secret Antiquities. So you could you could run it the opposite way while still keeping that strange, creepy, otherworldly feeling. Yeah, that's a really neat idea, and it, it's it's something that you could also do with like MCC. I think transport your party to the the future aspect of the fantasy, you know, in in sort of that element too. Well, and I think that if you take regular DCC characters and drop them into esoteric America, where if you're running it as a world where 
all the weirdness is sort of a background current as opposed to just being out there all of a sudden just like in this story you've got characters that are out of time but they have knowledge that is still practical and not necessarily widely known in the world that they're in they could be talking to a vietnam veteran who's still really shaken up who doesn't understand there's dark spirits pulling at his mind but they can see the spirits, or they they recognize the sign. They know how to combat them. They know how to appeal to uh, Uncle Sam or any of the Esoteric America patrons, whereas most people don't because they've kind of forgotten those ways. So that sprang to my mind. I also think it might be worth taking a look at the nymphs and other spirits in Divinities and Cults Volume 1 from OSR Dan Games. <laughs> Insert query they, here. They just released Volume <laughs> 2, which deals more with Celtic mythology, Celtic and Norse. But OSR Dan Games has put out two volumes now, and it's all about, well, it's sort of like Deities and Demigods. It's taking pagan pantheons and bringing them over for DCC. They're available, I believe, as PDF only, but I think they're on sale mm-hmm. for like four ninety nine. So they're certainly worth taking a look at. And like I said, especially the nymphs reminded me, you know, when you're dealing with nixies and water spirits and forest spirits, that really stuck out for me. Yeah. So That's those fair. are those are my inspirations there. Cool. And that of course brings us to our DCC featured adventure for the show, which I don't think there's an adventure that matches the story that this book tries to tell any better than Escape from the Shrouded Fen by Terry Olson from Purple Sorcerer Games. Yay, Terry. Yes. Jen, do you want to tell us about this one? What happens when a demon dies? Oozing, scalding death blood floods the land, cursing it forevermore. Every 17 years, the blood moon rises and the fog beast beckons villagers into the Shrouded Fen those that follow never return. Now you have been chosen. Seeking ancient ruins, vast treasure, and arcane lore, you plunge deep into the mist-laden swamp. Plants impale corpses ravaged by man-eating birds, while specters of past victims roam the blood-cursed land. A mysterious floating portal defies entry, though the bog's hidden artifacts are rumored to provide the key. Can you solve the riddles of the swamp and escape from the Shrouded Fen? Dun, 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 uh. <laughs> now, this is a combo zero level and first level adventure because there's enough meat in it for at least two sessions trust me oh oh yeah <laughs> well i mean we kind of just played just the primary story and that was two sessions there is still a lot of stuff to to play with uh, and i want to say yes i i didn't care for the book I did like the adventure in the book, so Terry, don't be <laughs> insulted that we're say, that we're that we're comparing, comparing Escape it. from the Shrouded Fan to uh, Three Hearts Three Lines. Actually, I I think it plays very nicely. There's so many similarities to the story, but I think that Escape from the Shrouded Fan does a much better job of presenting the story and presenting it in a playable format. Well, I mean, first this off, this is just much better. The the very first location that you actually reach is. Similar to the temple and the the place where Cortana the sword is held. And it's the place where you learn the backstory of the main character. This first location in the adventure, if you look in the right places, you'll figure some things out before you continue on. That was kind of a key point for me. It it just uh, reversed the timeline on it. Well, it's certainly a nice hex crawl, traveling over land, seeking out various things. 
Well, the, the entire mist surrounding the world of fairy, or, or what they call it, middle... Middle uh, world. Middle, middle world, world, yeah. Because it's not Middle Earth, because <laughs> yeah. would have beaten I, them I, over I, the I stopped. <laughs> but the entire mist surrounding the world of fairy, the middle world, is so akin to the fog beast. And mm. that, that entire fog surrounds... That is the sh- the shrouded fed. Well, you know, yeah. you kind of learned that from the back cover blurb there. So I'm not giving too much away there. Uh, it is very difficult to leave that fog. Just mm-hmm. like it was quite a, a trail trying to leave Middleworld. And what I love is that one of Paul Anderson's quotes was, If chaos wins, mayhap yon dusk will be laid on the whole world. And... Wait, can you say that in a Scottish brogue? Uh, nope. <laughs> oh, if chaos wins me, how your dusk will be laid upon the world. Oh, I'm a good dwarf. <laughs> You're a good dwarf. You're a good dwarf. <laughs> yep, we're going to get mail. Uh, <laughs> Careful what you ask for. We're going to get our first hate mail from the UK. It'll be great. Yeah, I, I, uh, haven't a, I haven't had a chance to play this adventure, but I had just to read it, and it's eerily echoed a lot of the, the setting and the themes, and it's it's just very well done, you know, in terms of what it introduces the players to, how they start from that level zero aspect, and, and they, they gradually gain strength, right? Sort of as, you know, right. as they, they get these abilities. But I also thought the other intriguing thing that they there's a choice that they have to make, you know, between these alignments, very similar to... Um, you know, the, kind of the, the the mortals having to align themselves with either chaos or law, you know, in terms of, you know, the decisions they make. And it's a mixed company, you know, in terms of both the people you encounter, but also the players themselves, you know, they are, they are going to have different motivations. So I, I, I thought that was a really well done aspect to it as well. And it's totally up to them to decide between those paths and to decide which, quote unquote, holy relics they're going to go after. Uh, and I think it's probably worth cornering Terry Olson over uh, over a scotch, and mm. uh, and asking if the similarities between this and Three Hearts Three Lions are intentional or not. To be fair, cornering Terry Olson and having a conversation with him over scotch is always a good idea. Yeah, I, I, I'll <laughs> so, put that out there publicly. <laughs> but I mean, often often when you when you see something adventure wise that is off the cuff based on something without being seriously done so, it kind of comes off as a pale reflection. But in this case, I think it's a much darker reflection, and I think the story has a lot more nuance for it. Three Hearts, Three Lions, it's, yes, the the fairy are kind of creepy one moment, but they're Darby O'Gill and the little people the next, and it sort of bounces back and <laughs> forth. So it's kind of hard to, to keep that serious vibe, and Escape from the Shrouded Fen is certainly a dark story, and it plays out really well. It'll keep players' nerves on end, and I, I think it is very successful for that. The... Uh, the man-eating birds, the the plants impaling corpses. These are some dark images that aren't just background. They're not just things that you stumble across, encounter in a description, and move on. These are integral parts of the tale, and it, yeah, it, it works out really nicely for that. Well, and one of the first, well, I should say the first NPC that you really get a chance to speak with 
is a crone with a black cat, and even the setting in which you meet her, it's so familiar to Mother Gord with Grimalkin, her black cat. And yeah, it, it's... The minute we met that crone, I was like, wait a minute, that's, that's, uh, uh what's her name that I had to, you know, do a, a little bit of NPC acting for, and, and yeah, that was fun. Since <laughs> <laughs> you're mentioning cats, Grimalkin, well, Grimalkin means, is, is a name for a cat, so, I mean, that's, that's kind of lacking creativity, and, uh, even the, even the cat in, uh. <laughs> in this adventure has a better name so we may be we may be a little wild but uh... yeah terry my introduction to to terry's work was with elzaman in the blood drinking box great adventure yeah great adventure like free rpgj maybe two or three years ago i guess three years ago now terry really can tell a a compelling sort of choice-based story where the players are handed the elements of either their doom or their salvation but it's it could be it could be done in different ways and that's another adventure where i i i think he's he does a really good job of you know sort of portraying alignments and sort of portraying inner party decisions and conflicts um really well but yeah it's a lot of fun it really could end up as players having some hard decisions to make i i was actually very glad that we ran the playtest with pregens as opposed to characters that the party was already attached to because it really could have gone ugly (laughs) (laughs) oh it was ugly either way a lot of zeros were laid waste to Uh, but so i think we can sum up by saying at best we are lukewarm on three hearts three lions (laughs) but we're all pretty enthusiastic about escape from the shrouded fen i can't say i would read either one to my kids <laughs> but... <laughs> Ooh, that gives me an idea for what to run next weekend. Mm. Ooh, hey. <laughs> okay, that one I want to report on. <laughs> so then let's move on over to our road current convention shout outs by saying, hey, Mark, what's the latest on the uh, 20, 2017 edition of Gong Farmers? <laughs> well, we are wrapping up our writer submissions period when is so the deadline on that it'll be actually over by the time this podcast gets released although we are getting some requests for folks for extensions so if you if you're one of those people that wants to contribute and the may I 1st am. deadline oh god it's passes, like tax season all over again <laughs> passes by um you know we we will we are taking a you know a few articles late already um, at least as long as we get them by mid-may approximately then that should give us time to get it through the editing process but right now we've got 45 submissions uh planned wow. out which is you know quite a bit um, how does that compare to last year it's you know i think we had about 50 last year but this year a lot more of them are going to be um mini adventures so i'm expecting that we may actually need more volumes than we did last year which will be kind of a, a curious problem yeah. to have <laughs> or a slightly smaller yeah. font <laughs> break out yeah, the but, stapler arms but yes. very excited because you know we're doing a lot of people are doing hexes which we've been asking you know, mm-hmm. for contributions to create a, a gong farmer's hex crawl so at least half of those are are people you know pitching in with ideas about their own sort of pocket hex universes and seen some really good ones come in so far so we have a may 1st deadline for submissions but if you need extra time uh let myself john hirschberger or harley stroh know and we can we can likely accommodate late submissions and then we're going to be done with 
editing and art in June and getting ready for our big layout and publication and getting it ready for distribution at Gen Con this year. Yay! Nice. Yeah. M. Nixick is running DCC Funnels from 2 to 6 p.m. every Saturday at Tacoma Games in Tacoma, Washington. Very nice. Judge Collin will be at the Phoenix Comic Con running events May 26th and 27th. You can drop by to play Sailors on the Starless Sea on Friday from 3 to 7. And on Saturday, you can play Hole in the Sky from 3 to 7 or Escape from the Purple Planet from 8 p.m. until midnight. We aren't sure what friend of the show Troy Tucker is up to. He may be in hiding. <laughs> Still, look for him at the Magician's Forge in Northport, Florida. And check for the store or find Troy Tucker on G Plus or Facebook for more information. I heard he actually got to play something instead of run this week. I'm a little disappointed. Uh, (laughs) On May 6th, that's tomorrow, the Appendix N Book Club of New York will be discussing The Hobbit. Ooh, a classic. And on May 20th, we'll be discussing Fletcher Pratt's Blue Star. Find Jeff Goad for more info. Uh, Facebook, G+, etc., or go to the Brooklyn Strategist. Speaking of Jeff Goad, he will be running Frozen in Time at the Brooklyn Strategist on May 7th, starting at 1 p.m., and Jeff runs DCC there every other Saturday. Jeff Bernstein continues to run DCC RPG at Games Plus in Mount Prospect, Illinois. Check with the store for more details. RPG Chicago is hosting a number of open play DCC games. You can check their meetup group for more details, and I will have the link on our site here. Joan Troyer just ran a new DCC group at Secret Door Games in Elkhart, Indianapolis, and hopefully that will become a regular thing. Yay! Congrats, Joan! Yay! Coming up on June 1st is North Texas RPG Con, which runs through June 4th. I think registration was a couple weeks back, uh, but there are still some games that have spots open, if I remember. And there's always open spots. (laughs) There's always open gaming and friendly people, so come on down to that. Uh, Look for Judge Chris, aka Tanglebones, to be running his funnel version of the classic D&D adventure B1 in Search of the Unknown. Bailey Nichols and Noah Marshall are running a DCC tournament, Assault on Castle Ravenvania, as well as events run by Craig Stokes, Julian Vernick, and Jeff Goad of the Judges J, Doug Kovacs, Matt Gullett, Edgar Johnson, Ryan Moore, Eric Hoffman, and me. <laughs> <laughs> Our very own Mark Bruner. That's right. Uh, registration for Gen Con 50 starts in May. Holy cow. Uh, oh record gosh. number of DCC and related games are on the schedule for this year, including the return, the long-awaited return, dun, dun, dun. of the DCC Open Tournament. And the DCC Lankmar Kickstarter at this point, uh, at the time of airing, has successfully funded Yay! and has hit Yay! a number of, of great stretch goals, including at this point at least six adventures. We're recording ahead of time, so I'm hoping, I'm hoping we're sending Michael Curtis to Texas. Uh, but it's hit six adventures, a poster-sized map, some fat dragon terrain. Overall, really, really exciting campaign cannot wait to get it into my hands so excited thank you to all of you listeners who helped make this happen because yeah it it's a piece of awesome and thank you mr curtis (laughs) thank you mr curtis for providing such awesomeness to start with so if you want to see your creation in the dcc community's only free monthly e-zine we would love to see what sort of things you've created based on your Appendix N reading. Remember, we have quite a few things in our prize closet to give away in return for contributions. We have zines, modules, even some great Appendix N and Appendix N era literature. 
Are you running road crew games or prepping for free RPG day? Submit your events or creations to us at the hub at sanctum.media. You can find us on the regular social media sites, G+, Facebook. You will never find us on LO. Uh, <laughs> keep an eye out for our future topics, and we can include your material in the show companion. And our free RPG Day event finder will be going up in the next week. Ooh. So keep an eye out for that. Send us your stuff. We want to make sure that everybody that plays DCC can find a DCC for free RPG Day. And when uh, reminder of when free RPG Day is this year? June seventeenth, I think. Yes. Uh, which reminds me, I need to make sure that our local store has got everything properly on order. Yes. And yeah, it's going to be a good time. So, Mark, any final thoughts? An intriguing novel. I I kind of agree with you know the assessment that you know it's it's valuable for its historical basis, and I think that. The reader shouldn't be off-put by either Scottish brogues or the possible lukewarmness that, that we conveyed. Because I, I'd recommend it just from the aspect of how it kind of adds to the web of the role-playing knowledge and uh, and genre. So I, I appreciated getting the chance to read it. I hope our listeners get a chance to look at it as well. Fun as a history piece. Got yes. <laughs> Jen, what about you? Worth it for the encounters alone. And the way he defeats the giant and the entire troll regeneration scene that was probably worth reading this book um, but overall mm, don't send us too much hate mail send us your submissions instead yeah well I'm, I'm if, sure if you don't gonna... like the way we've portrayed something make it better there's my challenge to you <laughs> well Paul Anderson's dead, so he can't really make the book better. No, um, no, listen. Maybe just send us other <laughs> send us other Paul Anderson books to read. No, um, for things to stat, you know, submissions. If if you don't like the the way that we've portrayed something in our review, well, give us something that uh, yeah, all the DCC fans will like and use. Fair enough. I, I think I think overall we've we've covered quite a few books so far in this series. They don't all have to be winners. Uh, <laughs> Life of Evan. And, uh, you know, I, I actually kind of enjoyed Life of Evan, especially yeah. in comparison. I really enjoyed Life of Evan. Oh, God. Um, how, how about but, this as advice? Go and run Escape from the Shrouded Fen instead and have yeah. a great time with your players. Yes, just tell yeah. them. Tell them you're running Three Hearts and Three Lions. Exactly. Run them through Escape from the Shrouded Fen. Give somebody a shield. They won't know the difference. Throw in a DCC troll. You know, we're good. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, so there we are. That is that is uh, Sanctum Sakura. I'm taking on the classic, uh, much beloved Three Hearts, Three Lions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we hope we've inspired you and not to find us in our dark alley. Uh, thanks for listening. <laughs> Good night, everyone. Good night, guys. Please don't hurt us. Good night. You have been listening to the Sanctum Sakorum podcast. Join us again next time when the Sanctum opens for discussion on Alspreg de Camp's Fallible Fiend. The Sanctum Socorum Podcast has been a production of Sanctum Media.
Copyright 2017. I'm bored. Me too. This 24th level dark elf barbarian assassin is lame. Hey, want excitement? I do. Want adventure? Yeah! Then just open up a vein and pray to the Dark Master! Burn some luck and roll a die. Now you're ready to listen to Spellburn! Welcome to Spellburn, a podcast about the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game and old-school adventuring. Join the band and party like it's 1974. Hey guys, can I play? Sure! Sure! Check us out at Spellburn.com or wherever fine iTunes are served. Oh, cool! I summoned a demon horde!